Good morning, saints. Welcome to Awaken. And uh, man, this weather has been pretty fantastic. So it's a funny thing I'm going to share with you guys. Don't hold me, I mean, you know, to I So it's a funny thing because I have this weird thing where when I think about needing to water the lawn, God sends rain. And I, I know it sounds weird, but it has happened like over the course of like a year or two years, I started observing and I'm like, Lord, and I don't think about this often because I'm not a yard guy, but I'm just like, I just distinctly remember yesterday saying, oh, I got to water the lawn and then going to bed and thinking, oh, I forgot. And this morning waking up to rain and I'm like, again, this is amazing, Lord. So anyway, it's just a, a weird, odd thing. So anyway, maybe I'm a prophet in disguise and just don't know it when it comes to rain. So uh, we want to welcome you. For those of you who haven't been with us the past few weeks, uh, we're in the middle of a series that we've entitled Sketches in Leadership. And the goal, the heart of this series is to help equip you, our saints, in leadership specifically. And the way that we want to do that is by walking through the lives of these New Testament saints, these New Testament leaders who were a key part of building the early church. And so before we dive in, I want to give a bit more clarity on why raising up or building leadership skills, right? Why, um, why we're even doing it this way. And uh, the reason why we've chosen this method of leadership development is that leadership exists at this weird place of, of intuition, skill, and then right opportunity, right, uh, and faith and experience. And so it's just this, this weird little mix. And, I, and part of training for leadership involves a mixing of that, that combination, right, teaching and training and understanding how do I uh, intuit, right, uh, how do I discern and then this aspect of what are leadership skills that I can learn and implement in my life to make me more effective. And then the experience of doing it, uh, the experience of seeing it happen. And what we wanted to do is take walk through these New Testament lives and be able to show you how in their context and in their time period, these are skills they applied, opportunities they seized, and now the example that they set that we have the opportunity to look back and learn from. So two weeks ago, uh, when Andrew was walking through the example of Titus, the focus was discovering what qualities to look for in good leadership. And Titus was the example of a man who was equipped to search out the qualities that would make for someone who's qualified to lead the church, to be raised up as an elder in the various cities where these new churches were being raised up. Last week, the example of Timothy taught us how to grow in faith and to fight the good fight, skills that Timothy embodied over the course of his life and ministry. And I'll just say this too, because a lot of us don't think necessarily about leadership over the course of our lives, or we can think that leadership is something for someone else, or that everyone is a leader in some way, shape, or form. And so what's the point of, if we're already in that role, then, then what does it mean for you to train and equip us to be leaders? And I just want to say, I believe that we're at a point in history where Christians are needed more than ever to stand and to be an example. You know, I think in the, in the book of Matthew, chapter 5, uh, what Jesus shares with the saints is that this is your calling to be salt and light to the world. And a light is not designed to be, to be set up and then put under a basket, right? But let your light shine before men that they might see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. But that's the purpose of light, is to shine. And here's what's really interesting is when is light needed most? Light's needed most when it's dark outside. And the darker it is, the more light that's needed. In the, uh, in the first century, 
in the days of the early church, it was a very dark time in the world. It's not like it was all evil. There was good, but good was very often drowned out by the evil around it. Uh, in Rome specifically, uh, there were a number of sins that just ran rampant, so much so that it was just considered part of normal life. So idolatry was considered part of normal life, that we worship many different gods. And anyone coming in, as a matter of fact, worshiping gods is what was accepted. What was unusual or not acceptable was to make the claim that there was only one God, right? And the, all the other ones were false. And yet that's what Christians had to boldly and courageously proclaim. Sexual immorality in Roman times, it was common for the powerful to have sex with whomever they wanted, regardless of gender and even age. And so that led to a lot of uh, immorality, uh, particularly toward, directed towards people of lower classes, the vulnerable. Adultery was just commonplace. And Christians, again, with the way God, choosing to live the way God had called them, required courage and faith and leadership to stand and say there is a different way. Slavery and racism was fairly common. I suppose it's rather easy to treat people badly when you see some people as being worth less than others. Brutality was pretty common. They, uh, for entertainment, they had people fight and die in the arenas. That's the type of brutality that was just kind of built in to their system. That violence was just an accepted part of their culture. And so when you look at this and when you work through this, when you take a look at the context in which the early church not only existed but thrived, and if we can imagine that the early church found a way to thrive in this environment, then maybe we can see where we might have some lessons that we might be able to learn and apply as well. Because for me, I don't think it's all that far a stretch to imagine a time when our world might look a lot like the early days of the church. And so today, more than ever, it's important for Christians to learn what it is to stand firm, to choose to be influencers rather than to be influenced. And that's what leadership is all about at its core. And so we've gone through this series, and over the course of the series, it's been interesting. Uh, we've taken the time to highlight some men, and the scriptures do that as well. The scriptures highlight men, specific men of faith pretty often, occasionally women, uh, even rare, more rarely, but sometimes a tribe or a team but very rarely does the scriptures highlight couples. And so today we're going to take a look at one of those exceptions, a couple in the New Testament that played a role in defining what the New Testament church looks like. I think sometimes if you read the Bible, it can easily be imagined that, well, the purpose of couples is to get together, to have kids, and to raise godly families, and that's why they're not talked about as being on mission. And I don't believe that is necessarily true. And so we're going to walk through a story today of uh, Priscilla and Aquila, Aquila and Priscilla, and how their lives speak loudly about, into lessons that we might be able to learn. And I do understand that some of this is going to be targeted specifically at couples and married couples in the congregation. And for those of you who are not in that category, just be gracious. And I think there's some good nuggets that you can still pull out of this time. So let's start in the book of Acts. And jump into their story. So Acts chapter 18, verses 1 and 2. Then Paul left Corinth. I'm sorry, left Athens. I'm having reading difficulties. Then Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he became acquainted with a Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently arrived from Italy with his wife Priscilla. They left Italy when Claudius Caesar deported all Jews from Rome. 
So the year is around 49 AD. Uh, Emperor Claudius, Claudius is the Roman emperor at the time, and he has issued an order kick, to kick out all of the Jews from Rome. And Suetonius, who's a Roman historian, shares that the reason seems to be because these Jews were persecuting their Christian neighbors and causing a bit of chaos in their various neighborhoods. And it's not that Claudius really cared about what was happening to Christians, but he didn't want disruptions in the main city, right, in the city of Rome, in the capital. And so he made a decision. He issued an edict that all the Jews were going to be kicked out, innocent and guilty. And so they were all forced out of the city of Rome. Aquila was one of those Jews. He was originally from Pontus. He moved to Rome. And now being forced out, he took him, uh, he left, and along with his young wife Priscilla, they moved to a city called Corinth. And that is where they meet the Apostle Paul. Paul has been traveling on his missionary journeys, and he comes to Corinth. He uh, gets to know Aquila and Priscilla, and he chooses to stay with them in their home for, 18, for the next 18 months. And in verses 3 to 5, it shares what he does during that time, staying with Aquila and Priscilla in Corinth for that 18 months. It says, Paul lived and worked with them. For they were tent makers just as he was. Each Sabbath found Paul at the synagogue trying to convince the Jews and Greeks alike. So what they had in common is that they were all tent makers, all three of them, which is probably how Paul really connected. We had the same job. We had the same occupation. We ran into each other, found out, hey, you're Christians. Fantastic. Let's get to know each other. Tent making was a pretty common profession back then because, surprise, surprise, a number of people used to live in tents. Uh, it's an ancient practice that continues even to today. Uh, we have people living in tents. If, you know, California has been uh, highlighted as an example where there are many homeless living in tents on the street. So it's not this crazy idea. And so what Aquila and Priscilla did, and Paul did as well, is they would make these tents. They'd make these large strips of, of cloth. And so what they would oftentimes do is they would take camel or goat hair and weave them into these strips and then take these strips and sew them together to make these tents for families, for travelers. And so it's a material that's going to be really coarse and really heavy that was designed to be that way so it would keep out winds during the winter and keep the sun off during the summers. So they just leave a flap open, but they keep the sun from burning down upon them. What made Aquila and Priscilla a bit unusual is the scriptures name both of them as being workers at this trade. That's a bit unusual, right? Uh, typically, it's the man who has the job and the wife is the worker at home, raising the family, or they were working two different occupations. But in this case, what makes this a bit interesting is that O'Hill and Priscilla are working at the same profession, side by side. Work, ministry, and family was all done together. And so because there was a constant need to not only have new tents made, but tents repaired, um, there was a constant flow of traffic, people coming in and out of their workplace, and so there were numerous opportunities for the gospel. And I can't help but imagine that Paul found that attractive. That was part of what drew him to the work, is not only is this something I'm trained in, but there's a constant flow of people to whom we might be able to share the gospel. And that's how they made, uh, how they ministered together until Paul makes the decision to leave Corinth. So verses 18 and 19, Paul stayed in Corinth for some time after that, and then said goodbye to the brothers and sisters and went to nearby Sencrea. There he shaved his head, according to Jewish tradition, marking the end of a vow. Then he set sail for Syria, taking Priscilla and Aquila with him. 
They stopped first at the port of Ephesus, where Paul left the others behind. While he was there, he went to the synagogue to reason with the Jews. So, after staying a year and a half in Corinth, Paul decides, all right, it's time to move on from the city. We've done the work of ministry here. A church has been established and is growing. And now it's time to move. And hey, Aquila, Priscilla, I want you to come with me. I know that it wasn't all that long ago that you were forced out of Rome. I know it wasn't all that long ago that you came here. You had to find a place to set up your home, to set up your practice, your your workspace. But I want you to uproot all of that and come travel with me. And so Quill and Priscilla, I'm assuming, they prayed about it. And they said, all right, Paul, we'll go with you. So they uprooted as well. They traveled to Ephesus, which is the fourth largest city at the time in the Roman Empire. And so here's what's interesting is they get to Ephesus, to this huge city, and they're needing to put down roots. And not soon after that, Paul's like, hey, you know what? I'm not going to stay at Ephesus. But you are, right? So I'm going to leave you behind, continue to do the work of ministry, and I'm going to start traveling. And so he preaches a bit, and then he ends up traveling and going off to Antioch, leaving Priscilla and Aquila there in the city to continue to do ministry. And that leads us to leadership lesson number one, right? I wanted to share two ideas. Two leadership lessons. Again, as I shared earlier, probably a bit more directed towards couples. I don't do this often. But this morning, I want to take the time, because of the lives that we're looking at, to make that a point of emphasis. So leadership lesson number one. Couples, live as co-workers in Christ. I know it's a bit mysterious. I'm going to explain what that means. But couples, live as co-workers in Christ. So the world has this interesting idea of what marriage is and what marriage is supposed to be. And the idea is that two individuals come together and choose to be together for the rest of their lives, to spend their time with one another, to commit to one another for the rest of their lives. They choose to do life together. But that's not necessarily what the biblical model of marriage is about. It's not about two individuals coming together, choosing to do life together, right? In the scriptures, in the book of Matthew, this is what Jesus shares about marriage. Matthew 19, verse 4. Haven't you read the scriptures? Jesus replied. They record that from the beginning, God made them male and female. And he said, this explains why a man leaves his father and his mother and is joined to his wife. And the two are united into one. Since they are no longer two, but one, let no one split apart what God has joined together. And so biblically, what this picture of marriage looks like is God takes two unique and distinct individuals, a male and a female specifically. He binds them together and he says, these two lives, these once individual lives are now bound together spiritually, emotionally, physically, and they are now one. Hopefully this is not a new concept for anyone who's been in church for a while, understanding this idea of two becoming one. But I wonder if you considered the ramifications, if you meditated on what all of this implies. Because the first thing that it implies is that in Christ, every marriage is united in every single way that matters, physically, emotionally, financially, spiritually, every way that matters. That is what biblical marriage and that is what biblical unity is designed to look like. And that's how Priscilla and Aquila's marriage looks. They're physically together all the time. That doesn't mean it has to be the same for your marriage where you're physically together all the time. You spend every moment with each other. That's not the implication. The implication is that they are so physically together that when one sees one, they assume the other as well. 
Does that make sense? There's an association made between the two. They're seen as a couple and not necessarily as individuals. That's the type of unity that's implied. Aquila, Priscilla. Priscilla, Aquila. They're named six times in the scripture, and every single time they're named together. That's the idea of what it means to be physically. They're associated with one another. Their names are never separated in the scriptures, and their lives weren't separated either. Financially, they're also bound together. In this case, Priscilla and Aquila, they shared their work together. They shared the losses, and they shared their profits together. They worked alongside one another. Spiritually, they were united. They chose together that we're going to follow Paul, and we're going to move, and we're going to uproot our family, and we're going to move to Ephesus together to continue this mission that we have not only bought into and believed in, but we are a part of as well. Here's where I'm going with this. Couples who are co-workers in Christ guard their marriage by being committed to ministering together. I don't know if we all understand or grasp that's what it means to be a Christian couple. And I'm going to, to share a bit more of what this looks like, right? Because I think sometimes as couples, we can be in a place where we feel like ministry is competing with our marriage. And so my doing ministry is, 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 is disruptive to our marriage in some way, shape, or form. And so we have to limit one in order to appreciate the other. And I don't, I'm not saying that's necessarily untrue. The practical expression of that will depend from family to family, from couple to couple. But the, the idea that you're feeling torn or sometimes divided, I would just postulate, I'd just share that that's not necessarily wrong. As a matter of fact, Paul shares in the scriptures, you're supposed to feel divided. That if you're a Christian and a married couple, your default state should be that you feel divided between serving the kingdom of God and serving your spouse. In 1 Corinthians 7, this is what Paul shares. He says, but let me say this, dear brothers and sisters, the time that remains is very short. So from now on, those with wives should not focus only on their marriage. So Paul makes it clear here, right, that your design as Christians, when you become a married couple, is that your focus is not supposed to be solely upon your marriage. That's verse 29. It continues in verse 32. An unmarried man can spend his time doing the Lord's work and thinking how to please him. But a married man has to think about his earthly responsibilities and how to please his wife. His interests are divided. In the same way, a woman who is no longer married or has never been married can be devoted to the Lord and holy in body and in spirit. But a married woman has to think about her earthly responsibilities and how to please her husband. Divided, right? I am saying this for your benefit, not to place restrictions on you. I want you to do whatever will help you serve the Lord best with as few distractions as possible. And what he's saying is, guys, brothers and sisters, this is the hard truth Paul is sharing, right? You are on mission. That is your default state as a Christian. The moment you put your faith in Christ, the moment you became a part of his family, God says, I've assigned you to be ambassadors. You represent me. That is what your life is to be all about. Whether, and then Paul expands further. He's like, I know that a lot of people think about marriage and want to be married and desire to be married. There's nothing wrong with that. I'm just saying that if you're single, life is going to be simpler because you can have undivided devotion to doing and being who God has called you to be. That being said, there's blessings to marriage, right? You'll get to know God differently and better in marriage, but 
you are now going to be divided. Your interests are going to be divided, and that's how it should be. You don't choose one to spite the other, right? And that is what Paul is sharing here. The Lord first, and then your spouse. You serve the Lord first, and then you serve your spouse, right? Husband, wife, your honey, whoever that might be, right? These are the priorities that must shape and define your spiritual lives. So, practically, my wife and I, we've been married for now a bit over 23 years. That's 23 years, yeah. And together, we've uh, raised four children that are all a blessing. They're getting grown now, and uh, all of them have a unique uh, but genuine relationship with the Lord, and we're excited about seeing where God's got him, right? And that's something that for my wife and I, together, we're deeply committed to cultivating and building in their lives. My wife and I, we've also planted two churches together. We taught on multiple stages together. We discipled together. We've seen people come to Christ together. We sacrificed in ministry together as well. I'm not sharing that necessarily to boast. I just simply want to state it that this is the what we have learned based on examples in our lives, and we want to offer to you to be an example as well. So you can see that our marriage commitment has never been defined solely by our commitment to one another, but also, and more importantly, been defined by our commitment to the Lord. And being one means we choose to honor God together. That is what makes for a beautiful, thriving, and vibrant marriage. Continuing on, uh, verse 24. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, an eloquent speaker who knew the scriptures well, had arrived in Ephesus from Alexandria in Egypt. He'd been taught the way of the Lord, and he taught others about Jesus with an enthusiastic spirit and with accuracy. However, he knew only about John's baptism. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him teaching and preaching boldly in the synagogue, they took him aside and explained the way of God even more accurately. Is that passage good? Keep that up there for a little bit. So the first is, okay, we are to be co-workers in Christ. That's what Mary, being married and on mission means. And really, it's what being a Christian couple is designed to look like, because we're all on mission the moment we put our faith in Jesus. So that's the first one, right? The first leadership lesson. And now we transition and we move into going back to this idea that uh, Aquila and Priscilla have been left in Ephesus and they've been abandoned by Paul, right? Paul says, I'll be back. I'll be back, right? So anyway, but no one knows when and he's kind of like, Lord willing, I'll be back. So um, until then, they're like, all right, so what are we going to do? We don't have a home. We don't have a practice. We're just here. Paul has left us and we got to find a way to make things work. And as they're traveling around, they hear this man named Apollos, who is preaching powerfully and eloquently about the scriptures, proclaiming Jesus, but his message is incomplete. He only knows the story of Jesus and surrounding John's baptism, and from that, it's remarkable that he's proclaiming Jesus well, right? But Priscilla and Aquila pull him aside to teach him the ways of the scriptures more completely. I want you to notice something in this passage. So Priscilla is named first. Luke is the author of the book of Acts, and in the most reliable translations, Priscilla's name is placed first. And I want to put that in note because for some of you, it's like, well, what difference does it make? And I'm telling you, that is odd. When you read the scriptures, when you read the Bible, when you read the passages, first of all, when couples are named together, I, I can't find a single example in the scriptures where the wife's name is placed first. I looked up Ruth. I looked up the genealogies. I'm like, it just doesn't happen. This is uncommon. And for a number of scholars, and I'm, I'll be, I'm not a scholar, but I'll count, be counted among them, and I agree with them, right? 
that the reason for this, the wife to be named first, a rare event, right, is because uh, she is the one who is taking the lead in teaching and equipping Apollos with the full message of the gospel. So I share with you earlier that Aquila and Priscilla are named together six different times. Four of them, Priscilla is the one that is named first, twice by Luke, twice by Paul, right? So the implication, again, this is no one anyone knows for sure, but the implication of this is that she is the more gifted teacher, and she is the one taking the lead. I'm going to share why this is relevant in just a little bit. I just wanted you to catch that. But post this time of instruction, Apollos returns to preaching, uh, exercising his gift, and he does so in a more powerful way than before. One more passage before we hit our second and final leadership lesson for couples. First uh, Corinthians sixteen nineteen. The churches here in the province of Asia send greetings to the Lord, as do Aquila and Priscilla and all the others who gather in their home for church meetings. So I shared earlier that they're named together six times in the scriptures. They're never named apart from one another, right? So they're named together six times. Four of them, Priscilla is named first, Priscilla and then Aquila. Twice Aquila is named first. The first time is in Acts 18.2 where he is, they're introducing him, right? Which makes a bit of sense. He's the Jew from Pontus who is kicked out of Rome and Priscilla is his wife. That's the first time they're named together and he is named first. The second time is right here in this passage. So I'm going to throw my little educated Frankism in there in the mix. No, nothing to back it up necessarily aside from a guess and educated uneducated guess. I don't know what it is, but uh, you can't prove me wrong anyway. So anyway, so we're going to throw it out there. I think maybe the reason why Aquila is named first here is because he's the one taking the lead in the house church meetings, right? He's the one more gifted in hospitality, in organization, in leadership. Priscilla's probably doing the majority of the teaching because that's how she's gifted and how she's wired. But Aquila is the one that makes this church community in their home feel like a family, and growing in faith. And so I think that's why he is named first here. I can't prove it, but it's irrelevant to the point that I'm going to make. Because the second leadership lesson I want couples to learn and understand is this. Maximize each other's strengths and gifts. Maximize each other's strengths and gifts. Look, you don't have to agree with me on why one name is named before the other. You can go ahead and dive into it yourself. Have at it. It's fun. And there's a whole wide range of different thoughts that are out there. But let's agree together that God's vision for the church is that every believer is a member of the body and each member has been given a spiritual gift. And tied to that spiritual gift is your unique place within the body. That is how God has designed us. He's once we made the decision, right, to accept Christ as savior, we become a Christian and a member of the body of Christ. God instills us with, when the Holy Spirit comes to dwell on us, we've been given a spiritual gift, and that gift helps shape what part of the body we are. So 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12, it is the one and only Spirit who distributes all these gifts. He alone decides which gift each person should have. The 1 Corinthians 12, 18, right? But our bodies have many parts, and God has put each part just where he wants it. How strange a body would be if it had only one part. Yes, there are many parts, but only one body. The eye can never say to the hand, I don't need you. The head can't say to the feet, I don't need you. Married couples, here's where this, these passages apply to you. 
So I shared earlier that the scriptures teach that uh, husband and wife, when they were married, they're knit together and they're bound as one, right? So they are one spiritually, emotionally, physically, in any way that counts. Um, and in so doing, but you still have two distinct personalities, uh, two distinct sets of gifts and talents and abilities, and that's totally fine, right? So even though a couple has been knit together, the two have now become one, it's, it's totally normal and, and probably common for a husband and wife to have different gifts, for a husband and wife to have different talents, for a husband and wife to have different personalities. And if your marriage is a bit like mine, one of those personalities is crazy, unpredictable, and sometimes unreasonable. And the other one is my wife, right? So that's kind of how these personalities work together. She is healthy and stable. I'm the messed up one. That's how these things are designed to work. But we have to live with each other nonetheless because we are one. Maximize each other's strengths and gifts. And I also want you to get that I phrased that very specifically. I didn't say maximize your own. I said maximize each other's, right? Find ways, and here's why this is going to be really important if you're a young couple or even a couple that's been together a while and feel like, man, there's some things that we still might need to learn, right? You know why this is important? Because it requires you, whether you're the husband or wife, to know how God has made your spouse. That is your job, right? That is your responsibility, whether it's as husband or wife, to say, Lord, how have you specifically designed and created my spouse, and what is the best place in the body of Christ for them? In a play, what place where can they thrive? And that means if they thrive, we are thriving together. And if you don't know that, now's the time to have some fun finding out, right? Discover, discern, and then lift each other up. I shared earlier that my wife and I have been married for almost 23 years now. We've done ministry for the majority of those years together as well. I shared earlier we planted two churches together. We've taught on a variety of stages together. We've together raised four children who honor and love Jesus, right, in their own unique, crazy ways, but they do, and that's exciting. And uh, over the course of those 23 years, my wife has taken the time to uh, understand and help me understand my gift of exhortation, wisdom, and faith, and that's just kind of the gift set that kind of rolls around in me. And she has done everything in her power to be able to maximize them. So she's encouraged me. She's believed in me. She's patiently listened to virtually every single sermon I've ever given. So for those of you who don't know, the way I prep, I do a dry run of every single one of my sermons, and my wife is my audience, right? She's the one who listens to every single one, and she's given me feedback every single time on how to teach more effectively. And for my part, what I've tried to do for my wife is I've done everything I can to help people look past her gender, to look past the playful way and carefree way that she can sometimes come across to see the woman, to see a woman who knows God in incredible ways. Her understanding and relationship with Jesus is one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen and am privileged to be a part of. And I want people to know and understand and see that as well. And I also wanted to remind you that in case you didn't know, that every single sermon that you've ever heard taught from me and been placed under my authority about has, been, has had her invisible wisdom and discernment woven into it. And that has been intentional, right? Not because we're trying to say women teaching, exercising authority of men. That's not the issue. The issue is we understand that God has made us to be one and that means that giving our church the best of who we are means that the best of our gifts come together to bless you. That's how we see it. Now, 
I'm not saying everyone has to function in the same way, right? Different couples are going to be different. This is simply one example of how we maximize each other's strengths, gifts, talents, and abilities. Give you a frame of reference to understand what that looks like. You'll probably do it differently than we do, and that's okay. The issue, the point is that you do it, right? That as a couple, you're not only building a family together, but you recognize we're building God's kingdom together as well. And I want to challenge you to look at the example of Aquila and Priscilla and learn these leadership lessons from them. Live as co-workers of Christ, maximize each other's gifts, talents, and abilities. I want to close out with a passage from the book of Romans, chapter 16. It says this, give my greetings to Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in the ministry of Christ Jesus. In fact, they once risked their lives for me. I'm thankful to them. And so are all the Gentile churches. Also, give my greetings to the church that meets in their home. These verses represent their legacy, the legacy of Aquila and Priscilla. And I want to be careful here because sometimes when we use these words, legacy and leadership, sometimes these ideas and concepts can seem really big. And for a number of us in this room, we can get intimidated by that idea of big, right? And the reaction of a number of us when we think about big is, well, that's good, but big is not necessarily for me. I'm not big, I'm small. I don't really want big. I'm content with small. And that sentiment, I think, is okay. And it's re the reason why I want to close with this passage. So long as you understand that small is fine, but small is not the same as insignificant. Small is fine, but small is not the same as insignificant. It's okay to have exercise leadership and to have a legacy that's not going to be written about in the world's history books. That's fine, right? It's okay to have your sphere of influence be as big as your family and your church and maybe a few crazy followers on Instagram, right? That's fine. Right? In fact, it's one of the reasons why I chose to share the story of Aquila and Priscilla. Because you know what's interesting? When you look at their lives, yes, Lord? <laughs> Gotta listen to this. All right. Because if you look at their lives, here's what I want you to observe about the lives of Priscilla and Aquila. Here's what they're accomplishing. Right? Number one, they accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. That's an accomplishment that you can chalk up to their book. They made tents to support their family. They chose in faith to serve alongside a gifted leader in Paul. They used their gifts to help men like Apollos and Paul improve their ministries. And they led a home group faithfully and well. That's what they accomplished. That's their legacy. Small things, small ministry that God chooses to highlight in the scriptures to remind us that small is not insignificant. You matter. What you do, what you think, how you choose to exercise the gifts God has given you, it matters. So be faithful, right? Let God use you and live as if that's true. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for the joy and opportunity to be able to walk through the lives of Aquila and Priscilla and to see how this couple, inseparable in scriptures, inseparable in life, and 
even inseparable and example set, Lord Jesus, and that we would look to them and be able to see, God, these are the types of people that you commonly use to build the early church. No huge grand stories, no huge grand accomplishments, nothing that, that uh, is over the top or outrageous. And yet, God, you chose through Luke, through Paul, to highlight their lives because what they did mattered. And Lord, I pray that as your children, as saints, Lord, that we would recognize that same opportunity before us today. That your calling isn't that we do something great, grand, magnificent that will be spoken of by generations hence. What you called us to is faithfulness in our day-to-day living. And as, as for those of us who are married, that we understand that our commitment is not only to love our spouses well, but to build the kingdom together as one. And Lord, that if we feel a bit divided between those two ambitions, that that's the way it's supposed to be. That's the way it's supposed to feel. Lord, we love you. We honor you. We are thankful and grateful for the calling that has been placed upon our lives and to know that whatever it is we do in faithfulness and obedience, even if the world doesn't acknowledge it, even if the world might despise it, you do not. You are the God who sees. You are the God who knows. And I pray that we would choose to live our lives for an audience of one to live our lives to please you and none other. That if you are honored, then whatever else the world might say is just falls on empty ears, Lord. Consider ridiculous in comparison to desiring and honoring you. We love you. We thank you. I pray for our saints to not only walk in obedience, but to be leaders, to set an example, to be intentional influencers of the people that you put into our lives. In Jesus' name.